You know, one of the things that I lose patience with is when I visit with folks and they say, oh, we're doomed. Freedom is going to die in the United States. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's my point of view. I don't want to think that I'm wasting 10 years of my life, um, you know, being the president of Cato, fighting for liberty, and, you know, we don't intend to fail. Um, and, you know, I think the ideas of liberty are so powerful and so compelling that I think that uh, even when we go through periods of... Uh, backing and filling, and uh, we might be taking some steps backward, it's always important to open the aperture and realize, as David said, the, uh, the great progress that liberty has made, not only over our lifetimes, but over the last couple of hundred years. I'm also inspired by the fact that um, I, I do believe small numbers of people uh, can make a difference, and even individuals can make a difference. Because when Daniel Hannon um, was uh, in his first term at Oxford as an undergraduate, uh, I believe it's um, accurate to say that's when the idea of Britain exiting the EU became your idea for your life's project, or at least maybe the first half of your life's project. And uh, Daniel truly is uh, one of the fathers, of not, if not the father, of, uh, of Brexit and has proven that one determined individual teaming up with other determined individuals can change the course of a country and, uh, and even the world. So we're really delighted to have Daniel with us, especially because, as you'll find, you're in for a treat. He is uh, one of, uh, I believe, one of the best orators we're, all, we're ever privileged to hear. So uh, with that uh, buildup, which I know <laughs> you'll be able to meet those Thank you. Thank you. Well, Peter, thank you very much. And ladies and gentlemen, what a huge pleasure to be here with you in Florida. Uh, you see, now, if I, if I were an American politician, I'd have to say, in this great state of Florida. But I'm retired, right? None of you can vote for me. None of you can vote against me. So I'm going to confine myself to saying it is such a pleasure to be here in this beautiful place with this beautiful weather, looking at so many cheerful people. I think, I think it must have a lot to do with the vitamin D also the vitamin D that you get uh, from the sun. I, I, you know, I, I was a conservative politician for 21 years, right? So uh, retired people were my base. And I have to say, the ones that I spoke to in, in the sunnier parts of the world were emphatically happier than the ones who had stayed behind. So all those of you who have made the good call to leave behind the white skies of the Midwest and the branches clawing the bare ruined choirs skywards and come here instead, I am gonna presume on your optimism. And I wanna say a few things about Cato and about where we are that will depend on your having a cheerful temperament. Because optimism is Cato's business. Right? We, we heard earlier uh, about the work of the Human Progress Index. These, the, the, and, and I tell you, if, you, if you don't look at that fantastic Cato Institute project, start. Right? You, it's just every day there'll be one new chart or graph showing the decline of illiteracy or the rise of female education or the, uh, the, the decline of, uh, uh, of birth defects in children, whatever it is. And when you make a habit of reading it every day, you will feel an awful lot better because you will realize how incredibly fortunate we are to live here and at this time. In fact, the original Cato's letters, which Cato takes its name and inspiration from, were the most terrific exercise in optimism. 
Cato's letters was a, a collection of ideas by two countrymen of mine, Trenchard and Gordon. They set out how an open society with a republican constitution could flourish. And incredibly, against all the odds, providentially we might say, it happened. And that abstract dream of freedom was turned into a functioning nation. If any country in the world can be said to embody an optimistic spirit, it's the United States of America. Cato has done a tremendous job of trying to cheer people up. I think it was Cato that nurtured uh, the talent of Johann Norberg, the Swedish academic who's made uh, a career of doing this. And his career shows what a tough sell it is. Because telling people that life is getting better is a counterintuitive idea. It doesn't often go down very well, other than in sunny states like this one. In fact, Johann Norberg came across uh, a piece of writing which said, we've never lived in such evil times. Our politicians have never been so corrupt, and the social fabric has never been so decayed. Now, guess when that statement originated from. Guess where its provenance is, right? It was found uh, as an inscription on a piece of stone in a museum in Turkey. It dated from 3800 BC. It was a Chaldean uh, piece of stone. So the idea that things are getting worse has been with us as long as civilization has existed. The moment we learned to write, we started grumbling about how things used to be better when we were younger. There comes a point when you have to realize that this is uh, intrinsic in human nature. One of my favorite British politicians, great Whig MP, historian and poet, Lord Macaulay, had the following to say in 1824. In 1824, he said, why is it that looking behind us and seeing only steady improvement, we glance forward and seem to descry only deterioration. 1824, he wrote that, right? Think of how apt his words are to our current discontents. There is always some looming catastrophe. Yes, life gets better and better, but the argument is always that it's about to come to an end and we're about to go off a cliff. When I was a small boy, people were very worried about a looming ice age. Britain was gonna find itself under miles of ice. Now they're all very worried about the planet overheating. It could have been bird flu or swine flu, now it happens to be coronavirus. It could be Islamization or debt. It could be asteroid strikes or nuclear holocaust. The cause changes generation to generation. It fluctuates with fashion. But the underlying argument never changes. This time it's going to be different. Yeah, things have been getting stubbornly better up until now, but oh, just you wait. Things are about to take a turn for the worse. My friends, we must be the most singularly ungrateful generation ever to have existed. I had a look at some of the headlines this week. Two things that just caught my eye this week. Uh, scientists in London have invented Let's call it an artificial leaf, a chemical process that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and converts it into energy. Right? And scientists here in the US, how about this, have created an exoskeleton that, allows, that has allowed a man who is paralyzed from the neck down to walk with thoughts. Right? He, he controls the exo. Now, here's the thing. Neither of those stories even made the front page. That's how much we take progress 
for granted. We wield powers that previous generations would have attributed to wizards or gods, and we don't even turn it into the lead story anymore. You saw the figures that Chris gave us before, the declines in, in uh, illiteracy, the decline in poverty. If I think of what's changed just in my own lifetime, I was born in 1971. In 1971, it took the average American worker three months to be able to afford a TV set. Now it's less than two days. In 1971, fewer than half of girls worldwide got anything beyond primary education. Now, more than 90%. In 1971, a stationary car emitted more pollution than a car today moving at full speed. And yet we continue to moan about how things have never been as bad as they are now. And the trouble is not just that this is ungrateful. It's that it becomes self-destructive. Because if we turn against the system that has delivered this extraordinary miracle, then we bring the ruin on ourselves. And that, I'm afraid, is a possible danger. The thing that drove those graphs that Chris was showing us, the, the single factor that has done most to lift people out of poverty, has been the end of socialism and autarky and the spread of free trade, the collapse in the numbers of poor people, hungry people, people struggling with illiteracy and disease, has happened most radically in those parts of Asia and Africa which have opened up previously closed economies and joined the global market system. If there's one statement that should be absolutely uncontroversial, for which we now have unquestionable empirical evidence, it's that free trade alleviates poverty. It makes the rich richer, and it makes the poor richer, and it makes everyone else richer as well. It's the most unalloyed good that we've ever had. And yet, we still refuse to see it. We go back to another quotation from my historian friend, Lord Macaulay. Free trade, one of the greatest blessings that a government can bestow upon a people, is in almost every country unpopular. That was 1830. And I think the words apply equally today. Why? Why is it that in Beijing and in Brussels and in Washington, D.C., we have people arguing against the system, that has delivered this extraordinary explosion of human wealth? Why is it that we hear the same old, failed mercantilist arguments? We can't carry on with a trade deficit like this. We can't compete with countries where they have low wages. We have to grow more of our own food. We have to protect our strategic industries. All of those arguments we know to be false. They're wrong in theory, they're wrong in practice. We could not have more evidence that they don't work. And yet, like a moth to a flame, we keep returning to them. Why is that? Well, let me advance three explanations for why I think we are in a constant struggle to win arguments that ought to have been settled a long time ago on the basis of data. One argument is political. One is psychological. 
and one I can only call aesthetic. We'll come to it in a moment. But let's start with a political one, and it's this. The political argument can be summarized in four words. Free trade brings dispersed gains, concentrated losses. If you have a steel tariff in the United States, to pluck an example from here, yes, it may prop up temporarily a few jobs in the steel sector, which employs, what, 120,000 people? But at a far greater cost to the 7 million jobs in the downstream industries, in construction, in aviation, in car manufacture, and so on. If you removed all of those tariffs, almost everyone would be a bit better off. Prices would fall. All of those other industries would be able to employ more people. They'd get an immediate productivity boost without needing to do anything. People would be able to use their extra money to spend on other things. More jobs would come into existence. And at the end, I tell you this as an ex-politician, not a single person would vote for you in gratitude. <laughs> but, of course, the steel workers, they would know exactly whom to vote for. Or let me give you, since we are here in Florida, an example a little bit closer to home. Sugar in the United States is about twice the price that it is everywhere else. Why? Because there are sugarcane plantations in this state. And this state, as you can't have failed to notice, has traditionally been regarded as something of a swing state. So even though those sugar tariffs push up the price of sugar, drive the confectioners and the candy makers to Mexico and to Canada and everywhere else, cost six to 17 jobs in food processing for every job propped up on a plantation here in Florida, the politicians will always cause greater damage to the country as a whole in order to buy the support of a favored industry. That's the political argument. The psychological argument. How about this? Free trade just feels wrong, right? We, we existed for a million years as hunter-gatherers. The instinct to hoard, to provide against famine, is encoded deep in our DNA. The idea of depending upon strangers for things that we can't see, which, if you think about it, is the basis of the modern economy, just conflicts with our basic intuitions. We're not designed for a world of superabundance and skyscrapers. Inside, our caveman is screaming with anguish because this feels wrong. And every movement against the open society, every movement against liberal capitalism, whether it takes the form of the Romantic movement or the existentialist or revolutionary socialism or fascism, every one of those movements is that alienated, paleolithic hominid inside us who can't get used to how good the world has become. And then the third reason, the one that I called aesthetic. I was interested when Chris talked about the education his daughters were getting. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you will all have a similar experience, right? When my kids were doing geography, it was taught to them basically as a hateful chronicle of nasty Western companies exploiting poor women in Vietnam, paying them slave wages to stitch sneakers together out of some unexplained sense of sadism. At no stage were my children ever really encouraged to think of the Vietnamese women who were stitching the sneakers as rational agents. In fact, they were denied agency, at least in these textbooks. The idea that they might have made a sensible choice, leaving behind a life of backbreaking labor in the paddy fields to come and get higher wages working for a Western company, 
That was not taught, let alone the idea that if we really wanted to help these ladies, we would buy more of their stuff, which would push up wages and improve working conditions. Aesthetic? You wouldn't want to live uh, in a slum in Hanoi and work in a, in a sweatshop. Neither would I. But we haven't made the life choices that the people involved have. You know, I, I grew up in Lima in South America. And Lima, when I was a kid, was ringed by shantytowns, by slums. Pariadas, they were called, Las Pariadas de Lima. And we would have friends regularly to come and stay with us from, from Britain, from America, from, from Europe. And they, the friends would do the usual touristy thing. You know, they'd come to Cusco, they'd do the Inca Trail, they'd go to Machu Picchu. And then they'd come back, and almost always, they'd ask the same question. Why do people leave these scenic Andean villages and come and live among the open sewers and the traffic fumes in the Barriadas? It's a real first world question. No Peruvian ever needed to ask why somebody would leave a village where there was no running water, no electricity, no school, no clinic, no job. It was a fundamentally aesthetic objection to development. The Victorian poet Trollope said, poverty to be scenic should be rural. And deep down, we don't like the look of slums. We all went through them. Our ancestors in every country went through this phase. And the people in those barriadas, where I much later in life had the chance to spend time, emit a sense of energy and enterprise and industriousness that frankly is a lot more hopeful than in some high unemployment black spots in the West, because they understood that the shantytown is transitional. It's a phase you go through. You're busy all the time. You're selling cigarettes at, at, at traffic lights. You're recycling garbage uh, uh, to sell it. And you understand that you're going to be moving on. But of course, Western development, Western policy, and our documentaries before we even come to the school syllabus is based around the idea that this is ugly. You wouldn't want to do it. And therefore, there is something wrong with the capitalist system. All of this is a, a basic genetic rebellion against the good news. Ask yourself this question. It's 400 years, exactly 400 years, since the Mayflower. Since we are here in Florida, at the interface between Latin America and the United States, ask why it is that the movement of people is so overwhelmingly one way. Why are so many people in this hotel, thank you, by the way, those of you who are in the room, why are so many people in this hotel, why have they come here from the Caribbean or from Latin America, whereas the reverse doesn't really happen? Why doesn't Mexico need to build a wall to keep out all the gringos? Right? And it's not, it's not an obvious question. Certainly at the time of the foundation, your money would have been on Spain rather than England as the wealthier and more serious power. And the resources in Central and South America, the great natural resources, were far in excess of those here. But the settlers who came here brought between their ears a far greater treasure than all the silver in the mines of Potosí. They had a way of arranging their affairs where power was dispersed, where the individual was exalted, elevated above the collective, and where laws were impartially applied without arbitrary government. And that's what made the miracle of the United States. 
but it's so recent, we can't quite believe that we're still living through it. And that's why in every generation you have the same cry. Well, we may be materially better off, but aren't we losing something? What about people before profits? You know, isn't it? Aren't we giving up on friends and family and the things that matter? You know, money isn't everything. By the way, I particularly dislike the phrase people before profits. How do you imagine that profits can exist other than by and through people? They're not some kind of disembodied, numinous entity that just hangs there, right? Profits are what have raised the standards of living for people all over the planet. And it's, it's a very rich man's argument to disdain them. It's not something you would have heard in those slums around Lima. So what was the magic? What was the, the talisman that turned North America into the successful society it is and that didn't have the same impact elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere? It's simply this. People were allowed to relate one to another as autonomous individuals without that relationship being mediated by birth or caste or tradition. There was a, a British prime minister, prime minister for most of the interwar period, called Stanley Baldwin, conservative, a pretty, uh, whatever the equivalent of a rhino is. He was a, uh, a, 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 an unintellectual and uh, instinctive conservative. And he was asked towards the end of his life, whether he had been influenced by any theory or any philosopher. Now, Stanley Baldwin was not the kind of man who read books, but rather to the astonishment of his interviewer, he said, yes, actually, yes, I was. I was very influenced as a young man by the theories of Sir Henry Maine. It was by reading his texts that I came to understand that all human progress is a move from status to contract. And then he paused, frowning, and said, or was it the other way around? <laughs> now, kind of cute story. It shows that even the most sublime ideas become worn through overuse. But just for a second, pause and think about those three words, status to contract. For 10,000 years, the lot of the human race had been serfdom and caste, slavery and oppression. And the way to get on was either to exploit everyone else, to brutalize them, to collect their uh, wealth through a system of tithes, tolls, and taxes with coercive power, or to suck up to the people who were doing that. We are fortunate enough to live in a system where for the first time ever, it pays you to offer a service to the people around you, where production has been elevated over predation, where you create more wealth instead of simply getting a different slate, uh, uh, place in the social order within a fixed wealth system. It's as simple as that, status to contract. Nothing beyond me and David Boaz being allowed to negotiate our own contract without needing to ask a king or a bishop or anyone else for permission. That's it. Grant that and the rest follows. And yet that simple, small thing is the thing that all of the Sanderses and the, uh, uh, the Corbins and the rest find so much problem with. Which brings me back to where I started. Cato and the enduring importance of education. None of us understands intuitively the things that I've just been talking about. All of us have to learn them. All of those mercantilist assertions that I was giving before, you can't have a trade deficit like this, we need to protect us. All of those things sound completely reasonable until you've been educated in understanding why they don't work. 
Now, it was the case that that role of, of education happened in schools and in universities, but it is not happening now. In fact, if anything, we're going in the opposite direction. The essence of a post-enlightenment Western society, the idea that we are all individuals, all responsible for our own actions, that we're not defined by the circumstances of our birth, that's now far from being taught in university is being disdained and dismissed. All sorts of difficult counterintuitive ideas. The idea that someone I don't like might still have useful things to tell me. The idea that he's defined by what he's done, not by what tribe he is or what his physiognomy is. Those things need to be taught, and instead of teaching them, we're teaching the opposite. Certainly on college campuses and increasingly in primary and secondary schools as well. We're teaching that on the contrary, the most important thing about you is your gender, your race, your sexual preferences, that you are indeed part of a collective, that you are trapped and defined by accidental circumstances of your birth. And that simply because you have a passing resemblance to someone who did something to someone else who has a passing resemblance to somebody next to you, that, that somehow creates some kind of magical superstitious bond of obligation between you. These are pre-modern, pre-enlightenment ideas. Somebody has to stand up and teach the truth. Somebody has to make the case for the primacy of reason and individualism. And that somebody is the Cato Institute. So let me finish by saying a huge thank you to every one of you who has supported this institute financially. And indeed to the many of you in this room who haven't yet, but who are itching to do so uh, as I finish. <laughs> because believe me, my friends, what you are doing is the most important task in a society like this one. You have to keep alive that charmed secret which raised the United States above the run of nations and created the extraordinary wealth and freedom that we've been lucky enough to inherit. The Cato uh, authors, Trenchard and Gordon, took their name from Cato the Younger, the Republican politician who'd opposed Caesar's rise to power. When I was in the European Parliament, I was inspired by his illustrious ancestor, Cato the Elder, who'd been a, a vinegary old senator in the Republican era. And he had this ide fix, this obsession with the idea that, we would have, that Rome would have to go to war with Carthage. And he would finish every speech, whatever its subject, by saying, and Carthage must be destroyed. And the other senators used to laugh at him and mock him and imitate his voice. Do you know what? In the end, they did it. And I thought, I'm going to do something similar. And so every speech that I made, whatever its subject, I would end by saying, and we need to have a referendum on the EU in Latin, because I was making my little homage to Cato the Elder. And again, you know what? They laughed at me, and they mocked me, and they ignored me. But in the end, it happened. And freedom followed. And Britain is now taking its place once again as an independent country in the brotherhood of sovereign nations. What do I learn from that? Well, thank you. Thank you. But particularly good to be re-importing our revolution and indeed having our own declaration of independence uh, to market. But you know, what I took from that is you, you have to keep going. You don't think you make a good speech and then that's it and you sit down, right? 
everyone coming new to this argument is coming with a load of false heuristics, with a bunch of rules of thumb that turn out to be wrong. And it's this organization and its supporters who have the eternal task of correcting and improving them. And that's why I want to say thank you, every one of you, for what you've done. You are engaged in the highest and noblest task there is, which is to ensure that that precious heritage that all of you have been lucky enough to take from your parents is kept secure and handed on intact to your children. So those of you who need to beat the ballot, now's a good moment, but I'll take some questions because I think we've got another 10 or 15 minutes. So, um, uh, and I'll ask the, I'll ask the president to, to make some throat-slitting gesture at me when we're out of time. So yeah, there's a mic over there, mic over there. Please raise your hand. So just, just, just for the avoidance of doubt, if, if you're saying goodbye to somebody, please don't do it by waving your hand in the air because it's confusing, it's confusing our microphone people. Yep. How would, you, how would you relate Trump's America first trade policy versus free trade as you advocate? Yeah. So uh, plainly, it's popular, right? To, to say America first, of course, it's his job to say America first, and that has a certain resonance because people will say, yeah, what a great idea. You know, make foreigners pay the taxes instead of us, right? If it were that easy, somebody would have thought of it by now. The reality is, every time that a country has gone down the road of trying to replace or substitute for imports in order to boost domestic production, it has made itself poorer. And the more it does it, the poorer it gets. Now, of course, America is a long way from being a protected socialist economy, but every step in that direction knocks a little bit of wealth off the total. Let me illustrate the point, if you like, by, by pointing at the two extremes. If you want the country that has most obsessively tried to keep out foreign produce, that has done its best to nurture domestic producers, North Korea, right? It's called juche. It means self-sufficiency. It's elevated as the, the primary principle of government. Result, North Korea is the last place on the planet where you still have man-made famines. Other end of the extreme, Singapore, completely open market. No tariffs, no quotas, no restrictions of any kind. This is a country with zero resources. It has to import its food, its drinking water, its electricity. Where would you rather live? However counterintuitive it seems, the countries that open their markets always end up becoming richer than the ones that don't. Let me ask you, let me ask you this question. Why, do you, why does a country in wartime blockade its enemies? What are we doing? when we impose a blockade on a hostile belligerent. Yeah. We're trying to cut off their trade, we're trying to make them poorer, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to put them under pressure. Can we all agree that we're not trying to nurture their infant industries, right? <laughs> can, can we all take for granted we're, we're not trying to help them get into a, pl a place where they'll be more competitive in the world economy, right? When a country imposes tariffs on itself in peacetime, it's doing to itself what an enemy does to it in war. Any more questions? Yeah, please. 
you uh, said that part of the miracle of the United States is that laws are impartially applied. Uh, in other words, there's equal treatment under the law. Can you address what's been going on with the weaponization of previously highly respected institutions like the FBI and the uh, Internal Revenue Service? Thank you, yes. So did, did, did everyone hear the question? Uh, the rule of law being undermined by the politicization of the FBI, the, in, uh, the Internal Revenue Service, and, and other state bodies, yeah? I mean, nothing actually alarms me more about the state of current US politics than the readiness of both sides to tear down all the guardrails in order to get at an opponent. Once you stop doing that, you very quickly become a Bolivia or a Venezuela or whatever. And you then find that it's a, a remarkably difficult climb to get out of that pit. But since I'm guessing that I'm mainly speaking to Republican rather than Democrat voters in this room, let me focus it that way around, right? Uh, there's not much we can do about what the other side thinks or believes, but we can at least try and hold ourselves to a higher standard. If it is wrong for President Obama to sideline Congress and assume excessive powers to get things done, then it is equally wrong when the guy in office happens to be wearing our party's rosette. If it was wrong for Barack Obama to be running a deficit and passing the bill on to future generations, then it is equally wrong when it happens to be a Republican chief executive. And as soon as you lose sight of that, as soon as you say, all that really matters is playing for my team, and I will judge them differently because I happen to share their colors, then you undermine the whole basis of a liberal society. Now, that's a very easy thing to do. Like I say, tribalism is our, is our natural condition, right? We evolved in kin groups. We think collectively. The, the, the idea of, of individual autonomy and the rule of law and abstract rules is a very recent, and for a lot of us, a very difficult and unnatural one, right? which is why we're also cheerfully inconsistent when it comes to condemning from the other party what we overlook in our own. But as soon as you lose sight of that, you lose your grip on what has made this a great, free, and rich country. And so, at least on our side, I'm not saying, you know, withdraw your support and vote for the other guy. I mean, I certainly wouldn't vote for the other guy uh, or other girl in the coming election. All I'm saying is don't let that cloud all of your critical faculties. If somebody on our side makes a mistake, that doesn't mean that you're under any kind of obligation to overlook it or go along. Any more? Yes, Daniel, I thought maybe you could shed a little light for me on the European continent. Germany just drives me crazy sometimes. They're one of the few European countries now, through the reboot, who still doesn't spend more than 2% or up to the 2% of their GDP on defense. They've built this, or in conjunction with Russia, built this pipeline from Russia to Germany, which can make them dependent on natural gas when they could easily import LNG from the United States to, uh, to Germany, and they're, they're taking a bankrupt nation, Russia, and plying them with euros. Uh, maybe you could just shed a little light on the mentality of, of Germany. For some reason, it, they seem to be recalcitrant to the Western world. So. 
Yeah, it, it, it was the case through the Cold War, and it's been the case since that Germany regards itself as having a kind of special relationship with the countries to its east. Uh, but here's, here's something where I do think this administration is, is going in the right direction. It is simply not credible, given what you've just outlined, to expect the United States to maintain expensive and ungrateful garrisons all over the world not at a time when there is a trillion dollar deficit, right? It, it, and there is gonna have to be some retrenchment. And I think that would make all sides happier. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not, uh, I'm not a complete kind of, you know, Ron Paul on foreign policy. I'm glad that you guys were in the Second World War with us. I'm glad you were in the, in the Cold War. There are occasions when uh, there is a necessity to deploy proportionate force in defense of liberty. But the, the massive commitments that the US has on every continent now, I just think are not uh, commensurate with the actual risk. And uh, the idea that you are still underwriting the defense of a Europe that won't pay for itself and that is conniving with hostile powers, I think that is, is completely unsustainable. So I'm, I'm wholly in favor of this administration's approach there. I'd make one other point. In a world where there is a uh, a more or less overtly hostile and protectionist uh, tendency in Beijing, and a less overt but still protectionist and anti-American tendency in Brussels, I think the United States needs to be looking for where its allies are. And I think that if you look at traditionally where those allies are, it's the countries that share your outlook, the ones that have the same heritage of common law, English language, personal liberty, private property, and all the rest of it. If you, you look at the lineup in those wars, right or wrong, you know, the, the good ones and the bad ones, the Second World War, the Korean War, the Iraq War, the Afghan War, and you look at which countries were deploying troops in serious numbers alongside you, it's the same lineup almost every time, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And I think that there is a very good argument for having a closer economic, political, and strategic partnership among the common law English-speaking countries, starting with a comprehensive free trade agreement based on mutual recognition so that goods or services produced in any of them can be bought and sold in any of the others. I think that would make the world a wealthier and happier place. Is there a gentleman here? Yep. Last one, I think. Yep. The microphone just there, sir. Yep. I'm going to pick up on the point that you just made and make a point now to tell me why Britain has gone against the U.S. in 5G technology. Mm -hmm. Well, the commercial incentives in the two countries are not identical, right? The, uh, basically, the existing mobile phone providers here regard Huawei as a commercial threat, whereas the ones in the U.K. have already bought into it. So that is the context in which this argument is being played out. Australia and the United States have gone one way, Britain and New Zealand the other way, and it pretty much aligns with what the, the, the mobile phone companies in those countries uh, have been lobbying for. But when you say gone against the US, it's, it's important just to, uh, to explain exactly what's happened. Uh, we have limited the Huawei presence to 35% of the network. That's where it is now. Right? This is not an increase in the percentage. That's what it was under the 4G system. And that 35% is going to be reduced 
over time. So the idea that we have uh, invited, why would anyone invite uh, a, an unsafe provider into uh, critical or core services? We have very deliberately excluded all of the strategically important parts of our network uh, from this contract. Uh, but uh, if the security guys are content that the little bits that are left don't provide any risk, I think that they, uh, they have every right to be listened to. And so we've made that decision. But like I say, it's going to be phased out in the years ahead. So one more. One more. The gentleman there has been very patient. Sorry, sorry to. Sir. Uh, yes, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, the utility of a multi-national uh, agreement where everyone spoke the same language. Do you see uh, a utility in multiple uh, multinational agreements where everyone doesn't speak the same language? Sure. Take, take a look at Britain. I think a reasonable person could argue that joining the European was a tremendous boost to them and on the contrary, it was a tremendous boost to the other European nations. OK. Well, reasonable people argued that case both ways. <laughs> and 52% uh, and, and decided that, uh, on balance, the costs outweighed the benefits. But look, of course, I mean, look, I, I would have a Singaporean or, if you like, a New Zealand-type trade system where you open your markets to everybody. What we have in common, and this is the really valuable asset, is interoperability. It's not just a common language. It's a shared approach to regulation, a shared approach to private property, to the role of markets, a similar accounting system, the same legal system, the same arbitration models. And that allows you effectively to trust each other's regulators or to give them automatic recognition in a way that would be much tougher to argue if I were to propose mutual recognition with Vietnam or Paraguay. Intellectually, I could make a case for, for doing both, both of those things, but politically, it is much, much easier to say, let's do this in the countries where the lawyers, the doctors, the architects have all basically got the same kind of qualifications through the same kind of system, the exam systems are similar, and the, uh, the, the governments are already close. And so I would say begin with, if you like, the Anglosphere countries, the countries that share that approach, the Singapores, the New Zealands, and so on. And then, by all means, expand it as other countries become wealthy and successful. Make it something that the rest of the world aspires to join. In fact, if we wrote a trade agreement that was open, that said, this is what you do to qualify for mutual recognition. Once you get to this level, you're allowed to apply. You know what? You've written your last trade deal. You just sit back and wait for the rest of the world to want to come and do it. And I think that that is a far better way of doing trade than the way in which the European Union has, uh, has approached it, which is to try and create common standards, common regulations, uh, and impose them uniformly. In fact, we just heard that the EU negotiator saying, uh, you can't have free trade with Britain without having all these shared standards on ecological and labor law and all the rest of it, because you're too close to us, right? You're geographically too close. I mean, that is a nakedly protectionist argument. 
that they're not even pretending that that's about environmental protection. That is straightforwardly about preventing competition. Now, I think that that is a very bad approach to world trade. And I think that Britain and the US together in the World Trade Organization could create a much better model. Thank you. Thank you.